Whether the guys at the Wednesday study would agree or not, I came up with a great insight um, on Wednesday. And uh, we were uh, studying 1 Corinthians, and then we were wrestling with some, some difficult things. And last week I told you this isn't, this isn't Miss Judy's uh, four- and five-year-old Sunday school class. These are hard things we need to wrestle with here in this, this chapter. And, and I was talking, and I, I used Jim. Jim Hurd's there, and Jim's construction, and he knows way more about construction than I will ever know. And I said, Jim, it's, it's strange. I never actually have to know anything about construction. I mean, if I want to know something, I can refer to you. But there's no obligation on my heart to ever understand the difference between a stringer and a girder, okay? Or how much weight that, that beam can hold, and, and what are the consequences if it doesn't, or anything like that. I said, but it's, it's you know, speaking to the guys, I said, it's, guys, it's your obligation as mature believers to understand the deeper things of Scripture, Okay, and, and I never have to understand the deeper things of construction, but you have to understand the deeper things of Scripture. If you're a believer, your heart should long to know these things. It should long to be able to get off the milk and get on to the steak. Okay? And, and we're not talking, you know, creamed steak here. Okay? We're talking thick, grilled, little salt and pepper on it. I mean, we're talking real meat here. Okay? Because those are the types of things that we want to wrestle with in Scripture. And and, and, and I know that that places an additional burden on each believer, and it takes it off of me to some extent, because I don't have to know about medicine or law or, or construction, but you have to know about Scripture, and you have to know theology. Because, you know, if you've been a believer for 30 years and you're still consuming milk, you've got a problem, okay? You've got a problem. Not that you have to understand the difference between supra and infralapsarianism, Okay? But you have to understand how to apply these things that we find in God's word in your daily life. And sometimes understanding God's character and the way he acts and what he expects of us is very difficult. And sometimes, it's, a lot of times, we don't like it. We don't like it because it doesn't fit our worldview. It doesn't fit how we, we would expect the Lord to, how we would want the Lord to act. But we can never say, Lord, well, you should think like I do. No, no, the Lord says, hey... You should think like I do. You should conform your life to the things that I put before you. So with all that as an introduction, we come to the end of chapter 11, verses 45 through 57. So if, if you're able, would you please stand with me as we read the word of God today. Heavenly Father, we pray that your spirit would come upon us, that we would understand the things of your word today, that we would grow, that we would feast on the great banquet that is before us, and that we would understand how it is we are called to live for the things of Christ, no matter what we face. We ask this in his name. Amen. John chapter 11, verses 45 through the end of the chapter. Many, therefore, the Jews who had come to Mary and beheld what he had done believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Now, remember, this is just at the tail end of the raising of Lazarus. Okay? Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But a certain one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, 
You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation should not perish. Now this he did not say on his own initiative, but being a high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Jesus, therefore, no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. Therefore they were seeking for Jesus, and they were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it, that they might seize him. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. Martin Luther King Jr. said, I have decided to stick with love. Hate is too great a burden to bear. Hate is too great a burden to bear. According to Meredith's books, a book of Bible list, there are 47 things in Scripture that God hates. Specifically, it says these 47 things. Now, I won't give you all 47. Here's just a couple. God hates things that range from blemished sacrifices to dishonest scales to witches to a proud look to the ways of the wicked. And we know that God loved Jacob and he hated Esau. Yeah, that's very clear in Scripture. But we understand that to mean that God loved Esau not in a salvific way. He loved Jacob in a salvific way. He didn't love Esau in that way because Jacob was the chosen one. It was through his line. Now, it's not something that we would describe as hate when we talk about that, but he loved him in a different way. We know that God destroyed most of the world because in the flood back in Noah because every thought and every desire of man's heart was upon evil. God destroyed the prophets of Baal. Remember, they had the big uh, showdown between the prophet of God and the prophets of Baal, and the prophets of Baal danced around, and they couldn't get any fire on their altar. And then the prophet of God prayed and poured water on, the, on it and prayed, and the fire came down, consumed them, killed the prophets, everything. God destroyed the Assyrians and kings uh, as they surrounded Jerusalem, uh, and he sent angels among them to destroy them. God hates sin. It cannot be in his presence. And it runs counter to this very character. But his hate is a pure hate. It is a holy hate. It is a righteous and just hate, just as his anger is. Now, do you hate anything? I mean, really hate anything, not simply dislike it. A human hate is a, is a visceral hate. It's a, it's a hate that comes out of our, of our gut. It, it, it controls us. It consumes us. It moves us to actions and thoughts that we otherwise wouldn't be focused upon. We wouldn't even think about them. Now, as uh, many of you know, I dislike sweet potatoes. Okay? I dislike, so I don't hate sweet potatoes. It's not visceral. I don't, it's not like I go around abusing sweet potatoes every time I find them. Uh, I dislike them. I just, you know, I just like the smell. Uh, now, I have eaten sweet potatoes. 
I have tasted them. I have smelled them. This is an experiential dislike that I have. It's not simply a subjective dislike. I don't like the it's not like I don't like that color orange. Uh, I just don't like how they taste. I don't like how they smell. I don't hate them, but my dislike has a factual and experiential basis to it. It has a firm, rational foundation. Now, I found individuals who hate without a firm and rational foundation. They hate you because of the color of your skin, or they hate you because of your religion, or they hate you because of your political view. They don't know anything about you. They just see one thing about you or hear one thing about you, and they have this hate and this anger geared towards you. No factual basis, no rational basis, nothing along those lines. Now, in years past, we as a nation hated communism, which was a philosophy that sought to destroy us. I mean, it was, it was appropriate to hate that philosophy and that it was all it was about. Today, there are other isms that we hate because they have the same desire to destroy us. That hatred has a rational, factual basis to it. Now, the hatred that we find in our scripture today has no factual basis to it, no rational basis, nothing that we can wrap our mind around really to understand why they hate Jesus so much for doing something purely motivated by love. Now understand that Jesus has raised Lazarus out of his great love, and they hate him for it. In fact, they hate him even more for it. It, 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 it. We can't even get our minds around something that wants to destroy something that is pure love and pure righteousness, and pure justice, and pure holiness. The only thing that wants to destroy that is sinfulness. And we'll see as we have seen throughout the, so far in John, and we'll see as we continue, men love the darkness, they hate the light. And when you love the darkness that much, all you want to do is destroy the light that shines into the darkness. Jesus acts in a fashion that, that is a demonstration of and a motivation motivated by pure love. But there's a greater outcry for his death. Okay? They already talked about, let's get rid of him. Now, when they see that he has acted in this fashion, raise somebody from the dead. And we'll see a little bit more about this in a minute. He raises Lazarus from the dead. They are so enraged by this. Now, try to think of that. What would happen if we went up to Maple Hill and, and just picked somebody at random and raised him from the dead, okay, and to the glory of God? Now, this is purely hypothetical. Don't think I would say we're going up there, okay? And, and, we, and when it was to the glory of God, how many of us would go, you know what? That Jenkins, he just raised somebody from the dead for the glory of God. We better kill him. But that's what they do to Jesus. They hate his love. They hate his love. Do you remember at the very beginning of the gospel, John said, Jesus came unto his own, and his own received him not. He came to these people with this message, and they closed their ears, and they did not receive it. Now, that became the pattern for his book, this constant rejection of Christ by most people. Most of those who saw and heard what he had to say did not believe. Yes, there were some who believed, but most rejected what he had to say, and many hated what he had to say. John said this would happen. Jesus Christ, who was the God-man, 
the lover of all men, the healer, the bread of life, the living water, the resurrection, and the life, the good shepherd, is finally and ultimately rejected by those he came to save. He was hated. He was despised. And as we'll see, as we get to Easter, he was nailed to a cross. Now, the action of Jesus in raising Lazarus is only what, what you know, I and, and many others have defined as a miracle of defiance. It's one of those things that you do. Now, I don't know the, you know, I'm, I'm projecting upon Jesus, but it, it sounds to me like he just went in your face, okay? I'm going to raise this guy. I know you don't think who, uh, who I am. It really counts. I know you don't think I'm the son of God, and, and I'm going to do a miracle that you cannot deny that is so clearly the grace and mercy and love of our Heavenly Father that you will demonstrate your own sinfulness and your own love of darkness by its rejection. It is a miracle of defiance. Okay? The ultimate purpose of the miracle was, in a sense, to cause them to reject him. They were not his sheep. Remember? The shepherd stands at the gate, calls his sheep by name. They come to him. Okay? The others don't even pay any attention to him. This is what was happening. It's almost as if God had said, you believe what you want. You conclude what you want. It no longer matters because this is my son and his path has been set since before the foundations of the world. He performs a miracle that is so public and so powerful that it cannot be overlooked. Now imagine that one day, last week, let's say, you're out having lunch with Lazarus, and you see that he doesn't look well, and you think, well, the stomach flu is going around, maybe he's got a little bit of that. And then you hear two days later that he has died, okay? He is done, and you go to the funeral, and you're at the grave, and you're weeping, and there's the, there's the whole funeral and the procession and everything. You put him in the tomb with everybody else. You say, that was my buddy Lazarus. And then four days later, you hear that Jesus shows up. And so you run down the tomb because that's where he is. And you're one of the guys that rolls the stone away. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And here he comes. And you think, I, I was here. I saw him put in the grave. And he comes out, and he shakes off the, the cloths, and they unwrap him, and there he is. Looks just like he did when you had lunch with him a couple days ago. You cannot deny that miracle. In fact, never in Scripture is that miracle denied. Nobody ever denies that Lazarus does not come out of the grave. The, the, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, they don't attempt to discount the miracle. They just accept it as it is, and it drives them to this irrational and craziness of hate. It's almost as if they say, you know, I've got my view. Don't confuse me with the facts, okay? It, it, I don't care. You're telling me Lazarus came out of the grave. I don't want to hear it. I'm not inclined to that, okay? Now, remember, everybody's inclined to have their own opinion, but not necessarily their own set of facts, all right? They didn't want to hear the facts. If I don't have to hear them, I don't have to address them. Now, look at verse 45. Many, therefore, of the Jews who had come to Mary and beheld what he had done, believed in him. There were many who came to faith because they saw the raising of Lazarus. But 46. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Now, these sound like informers. These sound like those who were just the people around the edges who um, were kind of there to watch out what was going on and report back to the Pharisees because the Pharisees didn't want to be seen in public hanging out with Jesus. So these people go back and tell them what had happened. Now the report 
alarms the Pharisees, as we can see. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convene a council. Okay, this would be called the Sanhedrin. This was the supreme court of the, Jewish, uh, of the Jewish world in Jerusalem, and it ran under Roman oversight, and they kind of governed their own it, it, with this. Uh, they had both religious and political authority in the Jewish world. And both Sadducees and Pharisees made this up. Now, it's an interesting combination of the two because you have the Pharisees who today might be the ultra-fundamentalists. You know, we don't smoke, drink, or chew or go with girls that do. Okay? And then you've got the Sadducees who would be the uh, ultra-political liberals on this end. And they never agree on anything except this. This one thing they can come to agreement on. Look at verse 47. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now, think about this for a minute. You're in this meeting, and you're one of these. Let's put you in the Pharisee. And you're sitting there, and you're thinking to yourself, I know Lazarus. I know he was alive, and then I know he was dead. And then I saw him alive again. Guys, guys, wait a minute. Maybe we ought to believe in this guy. Maybe he is actually who he says he is because he can raise the dead. And everybody else goes, raise the dead? That's not the kind of guy you worship. That's the kind of guy you go out and kill. That's what they wanted to do. He raised him from the dead. How about we go and kill him now? Here's the Son of God demonstrating his mercy and his love just to the nth degree by raising Lazarus from the dead. Instead of recognizing him and believing in him, they decide to kill him because he's a threat to the status quo. They want to kill him because he's a threat to the status quo. They have a power that is shared among them, and as soon as Jesus comes on the scene, that power begins to waver. That power begins to waver. So in their little committee meeting, they're getting together and they're going to talk about what they should do. Verse 48, if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. What does that mean? They're not going to follow us. They're going to follow Jesus. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Both the Pharisees and the chief priests previously had attempted to kill Jesus. Okay? Because they could see that his popularity was rising. Why did they hate him? His popularity was rising. His goes up, theirs goes down. The low point of Jesus was really after the feeding of the 5,000 when a lot of people left him because his words were so hard. But now after the raising of Lazarus, more people are coming back to him and attempting to follow. And then they say here, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They were concerned that he was a threat to their security as well, a threat to the status quo. His popularity was rising and a threat to national security. Now, if we look at the, the English, we don't quite get the great impact that it has here in the end of verse 48. It says, the Romans will come away, will come and take away both our place and our nation. They're really not concerned about anything other than the word our there. In their own little committee, in their own little Sanhedrin, they're talking about our place, our position of authority, our power and our ability to influence society. And our nation, eh, you know, it's our nation. 
we're the leaders of this group. They're not concerned about the individuals out there. They're concerned about themselves. That's the force of the word here, our. And that's what they're talking about here. So, and the great irony here is in an attempt to keep themselves safe from the Romans, their great desire is to kill Jesus. And they don't understand that by killing Jesus, they kill what they have waited for for generations and generations, and they in no way secure their future because in another 40 years, the Romans come and destroy the temple in 70 AD and just clean house and clean house there. Now, Sanhedrin comes to a decision in verse 53. So from that day on, they plan together to kill Jesus. They plan together to kill Jesus. From this moment on, Jesus is formally devoted to death by the Jewish authority of Jerusalem. Now, this isn't some announcement. The, it's not just plotted. It means resolved, determined, passed a resolution. This isn't just a resolution like we're going to make today, uh, you know, the Mayor Battle declares today Randy Jenkins Day. Okay, and I get a little plaque and I hang it in my office that says, you know, November 13th was Randy Jenkins' day and all the, he's accorded all the uh, whatever I get for that day. Okay, it's not really Randy Jenkins' day, it's just kind of ceremonial. This is a resolution that carries all the authority that the Jews had. It was now the policy of the Jewish people to kill Jesus, or the Jewish leadership to kill Jesus. That was the official policy. Thus, by giving life to Lazarus, Jesus had assured that he would be killed. He gives life, it assures he will be killed. He shows mercy, it causes greater hate. He demonstrates love, all they want to do is murder him. Now see, there were thousands, thousands of reasons for people to love Jesus. Not one single reason to hate him, other than the very selfish reasons the very selfish reasons. The four Gospels show him as kind, long-suffering, tender, forgiving, willing that no one should perish. He's called a shepherd, a teacher, a brother, light in the darkness, the great physician, an advocate, a reconciler. Jesus gave no cause that anyone should hate him, yet they wanted his death so badly they could just taste it. They hated him. So what did Christ do that he should be despised both by his own people and by people today? There's still people today that hate the thought of Christianity. They hate this love. They hate this gentleness that, that we are, are called to live out, and they rebel against it. The world hated him because he came as a light, and he delivered that light into a world that loved the darkness. They loved the darkness so much that the only alternative they had was to get rid of the light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Everyone that does evil hates the light and doesn't come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. So here's the reason the world has for hating Christ both then and now. Jesus promised to deliver people from the chains of satanic authority in their lives. He pledged to set them free from those things. He pledged to bring the kingdom of God to the world. Is that a bad thing? I mean, do you want to be bound by the chains of Satan? 
Do you want to be so full of, of selfishness that you can't see beyond your own nose? Or do you want to be freed from those things and let loose? Hmm. The world hated him because they brought, he brought this. They hate the thought that they need to be free. They hate the thought that there's any authority other than themselves. They see this freedom as a form of bondage. This is so convoluted in thinking, but remember, if you can see this, it's because Christ has opened your eyes. Those who are still in the chains of sin cannot see that freedom comes when we begin to submit all that we are to the things of Christ. It's the only time we can be free. It's like a train. When is a train free? When it's limited to the tracks. Get that train off the tracks, what's it good for? It's just a giant paperweight. Okay? But when it's on the tracks, man, can it go? When we are bound by the things of Christ, that is the only time we are absolutely free to be what he has created us to be. In the world today, there are a lot of people who say they want freedom, but they don't understand it. Now, I can't get past it. I mean, there are hundreds of people who've been camped out for weeks in different cities all over the, the country and sometimes all over the world. A lot of them are simply anarchists, okay? Anarchists. They're, they're just there because it's a good protest, and they don't necessarily know what they're protesting, but they want to get rid of rules. In anarchy, you want to get rid of rules and make your own rules. And any rules like, well, you know, guys, we've got to come in and clean up the park. No, no, you can't clean up the park. Okay, we're here first. Well, it's a mess. Oh, well, you can't have that gasoline in your tent. No, what do you mean I can't have gasoline in my tent? It's freezing out here. Well, you blow yourself up. You know, we can't have that. I once had a conversation with a young man who thought anarchy was the coolest thing. I mean, the coolest thing. It wore a big ring with an anarchy symbol on it. And I said, I said, you know what anarchy is? He says, yeah, it's when I get to make my own rules. I said, no, it's not. It's when the, there are always rules. Okay, there are always rules. But in anarchy, the biggest and the strongest and the meanest get to make the rules. And you're neither of the three. And all of a sudden, anarchy didn't look that good to him. Okay? Sinful man says he wants to be free from the chains of the sacrificial love of Christ, free from the power to raise the dead, free from the transformational grace of Christ. If only they could be freed from this provincial thinking, this narrow-mindedness, this, this being limited to the things of Christ, then they could bring about brotherhood and peace and all this wonderful stuff. They don't give any thought to the sinfulness of the heart. The non-believer says, here is freedom. When we can do as we please with our bodies and with our minds. When we declare ourselves free from all restrictions that religion puts upon us. Free from the bondage of the Bible. Free from any of the taboos that the Bible says. Free to worship a God of our own choosing, a God of our own making, or no God at all if we like. Simply put, the world loves the things of the world. The selfish heart loves the things of the selfish heart. The ungodly prefer the darkness to the light. They hate the light. This is the condemnation, the reason for hating him, that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. If Jesus brings such light, why is there such rejection of Christ? Why is there such utter hatred of Christ? Why does society go to such lengths to stamp out the things of Christ or to push the things of Christ off to the side so they no longer become important? Think of how, such stra how strange such hatred is. People don't usually 
hate those who love them, do they? I mean, who, who demonstrates, and this is just a statistical thing, who demonstrates the largest amount of love in society today? You know, it's Christians. And in fact, it is evangelical Christians. If you talk about the amount of time that they devote and the amount of their resources, financial resources they give away, evangelical Christians are head and shoulders above any other particular people group in this country in their demonstration of love. Now, we're not perfect. Don't, don't ever jump to that conclusion. We just look around. We know we're not perfect. But you would think that, oh, man, no, how about, how about um, maybe this group that, that always cries out and, and wants us to do more and more and more? Well, when it comes down to reaching into our pockets and giving of our time, evangelical Christians do the most above anybody else, above anybody else. And it is the love of Christ that compels us. It's not society. I mean, be honest, couldn't you do other things with the money you give to the work of Christ? I mean, couldn't you, wouldn't you like to have a, a boat? Wouldn't you like to go on a trip? Wouldn't you like to do some other things? Wouldn't you like to make sure that your kids are more secure in the future? But no, the love of Christ compels you to be generous. The love of Christ compels you to take your time and to devote it to hear and to hear so that others might know the things of Christ, so that the things of Christ might flow through you and change their lives. Why did they want to kill Christ? Because they love their sin and darkness more than anything else. You can show them all the truth of God that there is, and they won't respond to it. They just can't. There is no capacity in unbelief for perceiving the truth. There is no capacity in unbelief for perceiving the truth. They just can't. They just can't see it. I mean, anybody that could stand by a grave and watch a guy walk out that they know had been dead for four days... With the grave clothes just hanging there and a bunch of people unwrap him and he walks off and not believe. I mean, that is stone-hearted unbelief. They simply can't believe, but they can hate. But they can hate. But their hatred cannot stop the love of Christ because it compels us to act. We also understand that they cannot see unless God himself draws them unto him unless he opens their eyes. And we are the vehicle for that. We proclaim the things of Christ in what we do and what we say. And nothing can stand against the proclamation of the gospel. Not even this irrational irrational and, 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 and hatred that they have for Christ. They'll have it also for us. So, I, you know, I wonder, have you been hated this week? Oh, that's a hard guy. I haven't been hated this week. Okay. Now, have you been hated in your life for demonstrating the things of Christ? Hmm. I've been yelled at and, you know, called names and things like that. Is that really hatred? Well, I don't know. Nobody's ever punched me because I loved them. Maybe I ought to go out this week and love somebody so much that they punch me. Uh, You might get the wrong message. I don't know. But sooner or later, we understand, if we're going to be faithful Christians, somebody's going to hate us. They're going to hate what we do. But it's the love of Christ that compels us, and we can never back away. We can never stop. Because Christ has changed our lives, and we understand that he will change theirs as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we...
we look at this love, and, and for those of us who are believers, our eyes are open to it, and we understand this, and we, we think, why would anybody want to deny this? Why would anybody want to turn their back on this? Why would anybody even hate this love? There's a freedom that comes in this love. There is a, a, a this is what we were created to know. This is the relationship that we were created for. That Christ would come and cleanse us of these things. That we would know this love. But Lord, there are those around us whose eyes are not open to it, who hate it. There are many who simply are apathetic to it, Lord. But we understand that when we proclaim the love of Christ, when we demonstrate the love of Christ, there will be those who hate us for it. They will hate that we are gentle. They will hate that we were kind in the face of anger. They will hate that we do not return that anger. They will hate that we turn the other cheek. They will hate all these things that Christ commands us to do. But Lord, we don't know how you're using that in their lives. You talk about heaping hot coals upon their head. Sometimes it brings shame. Sometimes it brings anger and, and, and frustration. But there's nothing in the world that compels us or that could even empower us to act in a loving fashion in the face of such anger. There's only the love of Christ. Lord, this week, next week, perhaps we'll come across a situation where we have to act in a loving fashion even though we know there'll be anger that will be headed back towards us, or frustration, or even hatred. But Lord, let us act in a gentle way, in an uncompromising way, but in a way that demonstrates the love of Christ so that it cannot be denied. We ask this in his name. Amen.